Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. Today, we're talking about agricultural biotech, and particularly that dreaded word, GMOs, and all the misguided hype that surrounds them. We get fired up about this subject. I don't know if we have enough time in 25 minutes, but we'll try. And nobody gets more fired up than our guest today. <laughs> I know. Let me introduce him. Our guest is Val Giddings. He's a senior fellow at ITIF. His work focuses on science and regulatory policy relating to biotechnology innovations in agriculture and biomedicine. He's held positions at Bio, USDA, APHIS, and the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. And we're happy to have you here, Val. Great to sort of see your face after all these months. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Rob. It's nice to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my favorite topic with you folks. So we're going to start with the basics. Can you explain in layman's terms what a GMO is? Well, it's a great question, Jackie, uh, and it's one that's easier to ask than it is to answer. GMO is a term that scientists don't use. We don't use it because it misleads more than it communicates. On its face, uh, it, it means any living organism because every living organism, without exception, is genetically modified. Genetic modification is, in fact, the basis of all life. But the term is used by folks generally, generally to refer to something that's been genetically improved in the laboratory in a way that's not found in nature and they use this term to draw a distinction between something produced with the most modern methods, which are the most precise, predictable, and safest, and those produced with older methods like radiation mutagenesis, where you expose you know, some plant seeds to a huge blast of ionizing radiation and have no idea what other changes you might make in addition to those you were looking for. Uh, and it's also used to distinguish products of this modern breeding method from those of artificial selection of the sort that humans have been practicing for tens of thousands of years and which gave us completely unnatural new crops like wheat and corn uh, and allowed us to domesticate wolves into dogs from chihuahuas to Rhodesian ridgebacks. Opponents of agricultural innovation often use the term GMO also to cast aspersions on the products of these most modern and precise breeding methods, suggesting that they are less safe or less understood when, in fact, the absolute opposite is true. I love my GMO dog, though. Dogs are pretty lovable. <laughs> so why should we care about GMOs? Why are they important? Well, uh, a friend of mine, Nina Fedorov, who's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, has written a book about this stuff called Mendel in the Kitchen, and I highly recommend it. Uh, in that book, she says that civilization was built on genetically modified plants, and that's not an, under, that's not an exaggeration. The domestication of wild plants, particularly wheat in the old world and corn or maize in the Americas, uh, this is the foundation of agriculture. And agriculture is the prerequisite for civilization because it allowed for the accumulation of surplus food. And that is what it took to enable specialization or the partitioning of labor, which is the foundation on which modern human societies depend. So GMOs have not only been essential to our past historically, 
but they're also the key to a green and sustainable future in that they hold promise for moving us beyond fossil fuels for our energy economy, and they allow us to change and improve every aspect of human life and our interactions with the world we live in, from medicine to addressing climate change. It, I, I think it's also notable that, that GMOs, if you read Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which really launched the modern environmental movement in the United States. If you look at the last chapter in that book, she spends the first 16 chapters talking about the negative consequences of an excessive reliance on synthetic chemistry. And in the last chapter, she titles it The Other Path. And if you look at the third paragraph in that, she describes a new emerging understanding of better ways of working with biology by harnessing our understanding of it and the principles of natural selection uh, and through the advances that were taking place then in 1962 and three in molecular biology and, and, uh, and modern biology. And that's, that's the, the future that she said we needed to follow. And that's the future that biotech companies are actually, and researchers are actually delivering to us now. You know, Val, one of the things that when, whenever there's a complex policy debate where you fear you might lose it, um, the best way to respond to that is basically by ginning up fear. And the best way to gin up fear is to come up with these outlandish sort of really good slogans. Uh, so the right does that. You know, they, when they say, you know, Obamacare is going to lead to death panels. Well, I, I don't want a death panel, so I must be against Obamacare. But the left does it as well. And here in the case of GMOs, they've used the word frankenfood. Like, holy geez, I don't want my food to all of a sudden wake up with plugs in its neck and take over. I mean, so this is, I think, one of the big challenges. The left has demonized this, and then they've convinced all these other, you know, middle of the road, even corporations to go along with it. What do you think their true opposition to GMOs is? What's really going on there? That's an excellent question, Rob. And I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, I, I want to first start by saying that there are some folks who are opposed to GMOs because they don't understand and they misunderstand and they do think that there are risks and unknowns and so forth. And some of these folks, their opposition is rooted in this lack of understanding. But the reality is that most of the opposition stems from a small, noisy group of folks that are driven primarily by dogma, who are convinced for religious or philosophical reasons that genetic modification is evil. Uh, and rather than push that dogma on everybody else overtly, they advance it with stalking horses, as you've said, like with false claims of danger or uncertainty. The reality is that, that GMOs have been the focus of a propaganda campaign by vested special interests for decades now. They have spent hundreds of millions, they have spent literally billions of dollars uh, raising up organic food as the ideal and using black marketing techniques to disparage their competition, uh, which is GMOs, because GMOs and agriculture are taking many of the things from organic agriculture that are beneficial, and they are broadening their applicability so they can be used by conventional farmers without all the dogmatic attachments that organic brings. So most of the opposition is actually driven by vested special interests who are knowingly and cynically lying about it uh, just so they can make more money. 
Well, it, it seems also then then the dogma too. So it's always it's always to me the simple answer to most things in Washington is, is interest and and ideology. Put those two together, and you sometimes, oftentimes, don't get the right response. And so I think yeah, I think as you as you noted in your writing before, it, a lot of the organic food companies use this as a way to disparage their competitors and get people to pay more for organics. But also, it's these these folks who really fundamentally believe that there's something evil about changing a gene and that and that it's almost like modernity is evil we should all try to go back to this land of nature and we should all be living in hobbiton and uh actually i'd like to live in hobbiton i think that's a beautiful place i really enjoyed watching that in lord of the rings but the only problem is i wouldn't have any money and i wouldn't have uh, health care and all those other nice things but you would have gardens full of lots of beautiful flowers all of which are genetically modified from their wild ancestors by thousands of years of breeding yeah you're exactly right I want to talk about butterfly labels because we have strong feelings on butterfly labels. I think it, it you know, it almost always when a butterfly label is on a food in the grocery store, that item costs more. And I think that a lot of people kind of hear this and say, well, who cares about the the labels? I'd rather know what's in my food than not. But I think that there's lots of harm that these labels cause. I know you agree. And it's not really a matter of more information is better than less information. I think that this the butterfly labels really change your mind about what you're buying. And I want to get into that more with you. Yeah, I was going to say also, Val, before you jump into that, when I have gone to the grocery store with my daughter and uh, I see some butterfly label thing and I start yelling and I'm like, I'm not buying this. <laughs> She's like, oh, dad, come on, man. It's only a label. I'm, no, I'm not buying this. I'm not going to buy any of that. Yet. Do you make her read our reports? Uh, she has to listen to our podcast. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, I, I do the same thing. Uh, I, If I see the butterfly label, I actively go out of my way to deselect it and try and buy something that doesn't carry it. But we're the exception, really. I think that people really think that that means that the food is better. And I hope that we change some minds. Some people do, and the argument that the non-GMO project folks uh, advance in favor of their label is they say people need to know what's in their food. Uh, and, you know, I'm sorry, this is nonsense. Uh, the non-GMO butterfly label is not about telling people what's in their food. It's about lying to them about the safety of the food. You know, uh, uh, look at it just fundamentally. GMO is not a thing it's a process. It's a process of using the most modern, precise, predictable, and therefore safest techniques for genetically improving plants or animals for human use. Uh, there is nothing in a product that carries the non-GMO label that is not also in products that don't carry that label. There is no safety difference, or to the extent that there is a safety difference, the stuff that has been genetically modified is safer. There are specific examples I'd be happy to talk about. But these, the non-GMO, the butterfly label folks, they figured, hey, there is a space here in the marketplace between uh, expensive uh, organic food and conventional food. And if we can occupy that and charge uh, rent in this space by sticking a label on something that people pay us for the privilege of putting on their food, uh, we can say that stuff that carries this is not GM, is not genetically modified, you know, then, you know, we can, we can make a, a boatload of money here. And that's what they're doing. They have made millions off this label. And the label is purely fraudulent. It misleads consumers. It is designed to mislead consumers 
and that is all that it does. It does not provide any useful information about safety or about quality or about material composition. Uh, it's just bogus from start to finish, and it really sticks in Mike's throat. I have a really good friend. We had we had children at the same time, and she was struggling. She was living in New York. She's an author. She's a professor, but you know she was struggling to make ends meet, and she insisted on putting non-GMO uh, organic diapers on her newborn because she thought that if she didn't, she would give her child cancer, and. She, you know, she basically had to struggle with her rent because she was so worried about this, you know, false demon, really. Um, and it, it just really blew my mind. Yeah, I've known people in that kind of situation before, and it, it just drives me, it, it, it enrages me because, you know, people are making sacrifices. These people, they're trying to make the right decisions as parents. Everybody wants to protect our kids. You can't. Yeah, absolutely. You can't fault them for that. But, you know, they're not biologists. They don't understand genetics. And and these non-GMO folks come in here, you know, waving all kinds of nonsense. And, you know, there's there's a handful of pseudoscientific papers that they keep trotting out, which they claim show that GMOs cause cancer or this or that kind of a problem or an issue. And without exception, every single one of those is bogus. Most of them have been retracted. They've all been criticized you know, to to death and beyond by independent uh, scientists. Uh, there's just, there is no there there. Crops and foods improved through biotechnology have been subjected to more scrutiny in advance, in depth and detail than any others that we have ever seen on this planet. They have a record over the past three decades that is unblemished with, report, with regards to safety for humans, animals, and the environment. They're the greenest technology out there. They have reduced agriculture's footprint by cutting the use of pesticides by 37% uh, and increasing yields by 22%, which is a huge boon to wildlands and biodiversity by requiring more food to be produced from less land. And they've increased farmer incomes by 68%. There is a reason that farmers around the world have adopted these seeds more rapidly than any others in human history. There's a reason that they repurchase them from year to year at 95% and higher because they deliver value uh, at lower cost, a lower environmental impact, and in a safer way. And so for these folks who are lying about these, these technologies and their products, it's just unconscionable. And I, I don't know how they can sleep at night. I love Rob's example of when we're talking about yield, his salmon example that he loves to talk about. It's like, well, if your decision is between some genetically modified salmon and it's cheaper because the yield is increased by this technology or feeding your kid some crap organic uh, TV dinner, I think I'm going to choose the genetically modified salmon that I can afford. Absolutely. I, I'm right there with you. I've been following the salmon story for 25 years now, and I am really excited that we may actually finally be able to buy it in the grocery store sometime in, in the new year. I've had it. Uh, I have a friend who, who got some from the company and uh, had it with, uh, for dinner one evening at a friend's place, and it was excellent. And you didn't become radioactive. Uh, You're no. just fine. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. And, you know, this is a salmon that the developers who produced it, they took the gene for a growth hormone from a Chinook, which is another salmon that we eat, 
from the Pacific Northwest, and they put it into Atlantic salmon. And the consequence is that the Atlantic salmon reaches market size in half the time on 10 to 20% less feed than conventionally farmed salmon. And additionally, and this is the part that I really love even most, uh, I'm a fanatic about wilderness. I love wild lands and I, I, I love wild salmon populations. If you go fly fishing, you know, how, anyway, don't get me, don't get <laughs> distracted. We got you started. <laughs> you got me started. But um, the uh, wild salmon populations faced a host of threats. At the top of the list are dams, which have destroyed their spawning grounds. But very high up on the list are diseases and inbreeding from escaped sea pen raised salmon or hatchery fish. And those consequences of the, the present way that we try to help wild salmon populations are in fact threatening and endangering those wild salmon populations. This uh, aqua bounty salmon that's been developed is designed to be grown in concrete tanks uh, in recirculating water systems far from the ocean. Uh, so that what that means is uh, the consumers in Chicago who eat the fish that will be produced in their first facility in, 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 outside Indianapolis will have fish that is much closer, much shorter distance to get to the market. So the quality is going to be higher. And all of this, plus the economics of, of production, are going to decrease the costs of a food that nutritionists tell us we should all be eating more of. I mean, what's not to like? You and I both sort of look at this, you know, kind of to me, kind of, I don't know, irks me that people are, you know, kind of duped for that. But, you know, in the U.S., yeah, we're, even if you're low income, you've still got a little bit of money. And if you want to waste it on a, you know, $5 apple, okay. But what really gets me, though, is how this has been demonized for small farmers in places like Africa. And the Europeans in particular have done this, where they've banned GMO inputs and it means that farmers in Africa have been less able to do that, able to use these. And you wrote a report for ITIF looking at this whole question. Can you tell a little bit about that? What was, what's been the impact on low-income small farmers in Africa because of these GMO bans? Well, you know, there's two sides to this coin. What's been the impact of the bans and what has been the impact when farmers have been able to get access to the seeds? Let me talk about the latter part first. There are about 18 million farmers in the world who are growing crops improved through biotechnology, and about 17 million of them are smallholders growing these crops for subsistence or income on small plots uh, in the developing world. So well over 90% of the farmers growing biotech improved crops worldwide are smallholders in developing countries. And these farmers, when they see their competitors in neighboring countries growing biotech-improved crops that their own governments will not allow them to grow, they will steal the seeds and smuggle them in from the neighboring countries and grow them illegally. We're seeing that right now in India, where farmers are growing biotech cotton seeds that are not approved by the government, and they're smuggling in a brinjal, or eggplant seeds from Bangladesh, where they've developed an insect-resistant variety of eggplant that cuts dramatically the pesticide applications that farmers in Bangladesh have historically used uh, as many as 100 to 150 sprays of toxic pesticides to control the insect pests every year uh, to produce enough brinjal to eat. And so, you know, farmers are seeing the benefits of this. They will move heaven and earth to get access to these seeds because of those substantial benefits in terms of reduced costs, increased yields, and increased incomes that I mentioned earlier on. Denying farmers the access to those seeds means that the farmers who most desperately need to improve their productivity in the world 
particularly in Africa and in developing countries elsewhere, have been denied the benefits that these seeds can deliver because European NGOs have been exporting their green imperialism and funding NGOs to block the adoption of these crops in these developing countries. I'm happy to say that we are seeing that wall crumble. We are seeing countries in Africa now approving these products in Ghana and, and in Nigeria and in Kenya and Uganda. We've, South Africa has been growing these crops for years, for 20 years and more, but we're now seeing Zambia and Zimbabwe start to contemplate growing them. Malawi is growing biotech cotton. So these African countries are now moving towards adopting these crops, despite all the pressure that Europeans have put on them. And, you know, this is what the future needs, uh, and it's wonderful to see it happening. Well, Val, that's great. I mean, there's just so many different benefits. I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, Pollyannish and, you know, all this, but it really is an amazing technology that scientists have, have been perfecting, and it's kind of the, the next big thing after the green revolution uh, in India, and it's going to help with small farmers. Uh, it's going to keep the food prices low. It's going to make as you've also written, it's going to make, uh, as we unfortunately have climate change, it's going to make it so that you can grow foods that are drought resistant and heat resistant. And also, as your last report said, you know, there's a lot of real opportunity with uh, with genetically modified trees, crops, all sorts of different algaes to really help fight climate change. So it's, a, it's an important technology for our future. And I, and I just hope that policymakers listen to you, listen to us as, as we go forward. So with that, I want to thank you, Val, for, for being here. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Val. Down with organic diapers. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Always happy to be here and work with you folks. Well, that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And we have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 